0: Father, we are grateful this morning that um, your word is not dependent on any of these technologies and our time together can still be immensely profitable. And we are grateful that you have given us um, your word and that you have given us this subject of theology um, contained in it, um, which is chiefly to lead us to the knowledge of yourself and into right relationship with you and to cultivate that relationship through, as we learned last week, through study and obedience and, and passing that on to others. So, Lord, would you bless us this morning as we discuss this subject of theological priorities and how we think about different categories of doctrine. Would you help us to understand these things and to apply these things in our lives and the way that we relate to our brothers and sisters in the church and the way that we model the importance and first importance of the gospel for the world. So we ask all of this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, sorry about the uh, PowerPoint this morning, but we will uh, we will work from... Uh, my notes here a little bit. I wanted to share a little bit of a story um, on the front end of the class that illustrates kind of the point of the class. It, it illustrates where we're where we're headed. Um, Ian Murray, um, most of you I hope know his name. Um, he is a bi- biographer largely and has written on a number a number of helpful biographies. Basically, if Ian Murray, I A. I-N is how he spells I-N. He's British. Um, If you you find any biographies by him, pick them up, read them. They're they're, they're fantastic. But probably his most famous biography is of his friend and colleague, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in uh, in the London area in the last century. Um, He died in 1981. Um, But... In the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Pastor Keith Withrow will appreciate this because this is one of his favorite books as well, uh, he recounts a meeting between Martin Lloyd-Jones and a fellow pastor named T.T. Shields. And uh, in theology, Shields and Lloyd-Jones were very much on the same page. Um, They were both Calvinists. They were both amillennial in their view of unfulfilled prophecy. But there was an important aspect of Shields' ministry with which Lloyd-Jones was not in sympathy. He thought that T.T. T. Shields, the Baptist leader, was sometimes too controversial, too censorious, and too denunciatory were his words. He said, quote, rather than helping young Christians by the strength of his arguments against liberal Protestants and Roman Catholics, Lloyd-Jones believes that Shields was losing the opportunity to influence those whose first need was to be given positive teaching. So here's what Murray recounted in a time when Lloyd-Jones and Shields planned a meeting together. Ian Murray writes, "...as Dr. Lloyd-Jones spoke with his wife Bethan, who was not to accompany him, of this forthcoming meeting, and they had prayed about it, he came to the conviction that if Shields gave him any kind of opportunity... He would raise the matter which limited his admiration of the old preacher's evangelicalism. So Lloyd-Jones later recounted what took place at that meeting. He said, Shields came to fetch me and we had lunch. We talked on general subjects and then we went to sit in the garden. There, as we drank coffee, he suddenly turned to me and said, Are you a great reader of Joseph Parker? Parker was a 19th century English congregational minister. Lloyd-Jones replied, No, I'm not. Why? Shields asked. Lloyd-Jones says, well, I get nothing from him. Man, he said, what's the matter with you? Well, I said, it's all very well to make these criticisms of the liberals, but he doesn't help me spiritually. Surely you, you're helped by the way he makes mincemeat of the liberals. No, I'm not, I responded. You can make mincemeat of the liberals and still be in trouble in your soul. Well, Shield said, I read Joseph Parker every morning. He, puts win- he winds me up, puts me right. I felt my opening had come, so we began. We had a great debate. He was a very able man, and we argued the issue about which I disagreed with him. In defense of his attitude, he said, Do you know every time I indulge in what you call one of these dogfights, the sales of my gospel witness goes up? The gospel witness was the newspaper that was started by Shields in 1922 that had 30,000 subscribers. we got a little bit of that going on today, too, in the church. Um, uh, Heat draws money, so... Just be aware of that. Well, I replied, I have always observed that if there's a big dogfight, a crowd gathers. I'm not at all surprised. People like that sort of thing, Lloyd-Jones said. Then he brought up another argument. He said, now you're a doctor, and you're confronted by a patient who has got cancer. You know that if that cancer is not removed, it's going to kill the patient. You don't want to operate, but you have to do so because it's going to save the patient's life. That's my position. I don't want to be doing this kind of thing, but there is this cancer and it's got to be removed. What do you say to that? I responded, what I say is this. I'm a physician, but there is such a thing as a surgical mentality of being knife happy. I agree that there are some cases where you have to operate, but the danger of the surgeon is to operate immediately. He thinks in terms of operating. Never have an operation without having a second opinion from a physician. At this point, Shields got up, walked down the garden, and then came back to reopen the conversation. Well, he said, what about this? You remember Paul in Galatians 2? He had to withstand Peter face to face. He did not want to do it. Peter was an older apostle, and Paul did it very reluctantly, but he had to do it for the sake of the truth. I'm in exactly that position. What do you say to that? I would say this, I responded, that the effect of what Paul did was to win Peter round to his position and make him call and call him our beloved brother Paul. Can you say the same about the people whom you attack? Shields was finished. Then after we had stopped arguing, I made a great appeal to him. I said, Doctor Shields, you used to be known as the Canadian Spurgeon, and you were. You're an outstanding man, an intellect and preaching gift in every other respect. But over th- Over the McMaster University business in the early 20s, you suddenly changed and became negatory and denunciatory. I feel it has ruined your ministry. Why don't you come back, drop all this, preach the gospel to people positively and win them. Murray concludes, Dr. Lloyd-Jones continued this appeal as they drove back in the car. With tears in his eyes, Shields, then 59 years old, at length confessed, quote, I have never been spoken to like this in my life before, and I am most grateful for you. You have moved me very deeply. I will tell you what I will do. I will call a meeting of my board tomorrow night, tell them exactly what we have discussed, and put myself in their hands. If they agree with you, I'll do what you say. If they don't, I won't. So, the meeting, as Dr. Lloyd Jones eventually heard, took place as arranged, and Shields' men told him not to listen to the advice he had received. And so no change was to follow the memorable meeting of the two men except that Lloyd-Jones became more firmly convinced the way in which an Orthodox ministry can be spoilt is by a wrong spirit and by wrong methods. So I think that story is good in that it illustrates two men, loved by the Lord, valiant for truth, who nevertheless recognized and I think Lloyd-Jones was right in this, recognized that there can be a tendency, if we're not careful, to... To, to think of all theology as equally the same, or that every doctrine is to be contended for with the same zeal as every other doctrine. So what we're going to h- discuss here in this particular class is theological priorities. How do we arrive at those sort of things? How do? Last week was more of our approach to theology, the posture that we take, and this week is going to be more how we wield it. How do we avoid the sorts of things that our brother T.T. Shields tended to fall into? So here's my outline this morning. I'm going to make a biblical case for theological priorities. I'm going to provide a practical framework for theological priorities and then I want to conclude with some guiding questions that help us inform how we think about theological prioritization. So first of all, what does the Bible say? This is the most important question we can ask about any subject of study, but I think it's important to ask this. My thesis here is that while everything the Bible teaches is important, or otherwise God wouldn't have said it, right? Everything is important. Not everything is equally important. So I want to give you some examples of this. Five specifically. First of all, the prophets, if you'll remember, they decried some sins as more heinous than others. Jeremiah 16, 12, And because you have done worse than your father's, For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Ezekiel 23.11, Her sister Aholiba says this, And she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. Second, Jesus thought about God's law, similar to the Old Testament prophets, in terms of lesser and greater offense with lesser and greater degrees of punishment. So, for instance, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So again, he's not saying those things were unimportant. He's saying, like tithing, your mint and your dill and your cumin, those are good things to do. But the weightier matters of the law, the more important matters of the law would be justice and mercy and faithfulness. And it was those things that the Pharisees were failing to do. Matthew 10 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable, more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, obviously indicating different degrees of judgment based upon sinfulness. Luke twelve, forty seven to forty eight, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what did and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Every one to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. John 19, 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus thought in terms of degrees of offense and degrees of punishment. Thirdly, the Old Testament law made provision for different kinds of sin, such as unintentional sin or what the Old Testament calls high-handed sin, would be deliberate sin. Psalm 19, 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant also back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So what does the psalmist say there? Well, he recognizes different categories of sin, right? He says, there are some things I have no idea about. There are errors. There are hidden faults. I don't, I don't know those things, but I pray that the Lord would help me to know them and that I could be declared innocent from them. But then he also says, keep me back from the sins that I know about that I shouldn't be doing. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. And then he says, then I'll be innocent of great transgression. Obviously indicating that presumptuous sinning is a greater transgression than sinning that you don't know about. Right, hidden faults, errors. It doesn't mean they're not sin. It just means there's greater sin and presumptuous sin or what the Old Testament would call high-handed sin. Fourthly, Jesus had categories for the most important parts of God's law. You know this verse very well, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. 40, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? (laughs) So you could almost hear Jesus as he gets that question saying, what are you talking about? Everything God's spoken is great. Don't ask me to categorize the importance of the law. Don't, t- don't tell me what's more important or less important. You need to do it all. But he doesn't answer that way. He says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus obviously thought this is the capstone. If you want it summarized, if you want the greatest commandments given... Here it is. And then fifthly and finally, the Apostle Paul thought in terms of theological priorities as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, the great passage on the resurrection. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of what? first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul sees the gospel, that is the message of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, as of first importance. It is the most important thing that I preach, Paul says. So that's my brief biblical case for theological prioritization. I think it's supported by the Bible. I think we have to wrestle with how that's applied, which is why we're going to talk about that in the rest of the class. But nonetheless, it's an important framework for us to have, and I'll discuss near the end why it's such an important framework for us to have. So with that biblical framework given, let's move into some of the practical discussion about this. So what implications does this have for our theological thinking? Well, I think the first implication it has to have is we have to think in terms of categories of importance. We've got to learn to think doctrinally, not as though it were on an even plane, but there's 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 gradation, there's varying of importance. There are issues that are critical. There are issues which must not be denied. There are issues which are fundamental to the faith by which a Christian is identified and recognized. There's salvific matters, matters concerning salvation, but there's also matters that concern the church. And then there's matters that concern the individual Christian. And so we have to wrestle with, okay, what issues would fall under the first level of importance, the gospel, salvation matters? What issues would apply to second level, maybe church-oriented kinds of things, over which churches need to unite? And then third-level issues, which could be disputable matters, important but maybe not issues over which churches should separate. So those are sort of the issues that we're going to um, think through, and probably the most popular article that has been written on this subject, it may be the most popular article that Albert Muller has ever written um, over at Southern Seminary, but you can still find it on the internet, and, and it's a worthwhile read, um, and I think it will benefit you if you haven't read it already um, coming out of this class, uh, A Case for Theological Triage. Now, he uses the, um, the, the emergency room idea of triage, right? When someone goes into the emergency room or they're brought by an ambulance to the emergency room, the, the admitted, admitting triage nurse or, or doctor on, on call doesn't, has to, has to make some evaluations about how quickly the patient's going to be treated based on how severe the in, in, injury is, right? So, if, the, the subject is brought in, and they have um, a large cut, say on their side or on their arm, and they 're bleeding quite badly, but it maybe it was in a car accident um, but but it 's not life threatening they need to get that under control, but they can they can treat it but it 's not super urgent but they have they have another person who 's brought in say five minutes before who um, lost a limb in a car accident, and it's very severe, and they could die from just letting out the blood. So obviously you're going to treat that person before they treat the cut. Now, does that mean the cut's not important? No, it could be life-threatening. But right now it's not urgent. So Moeller takes that concept of triage and applies it to theology. And I think this is what Lloyd-Jones was kind of getting at with T.T. Shields, is like, brother, you have to have some categories for triage here, you, you seem to treat everything as though it were an urgent, important matter over which the liberals are going to overrun the church. Um, you got to speak out against it all. Otherwise, you know, uh, it's, it's going to harm the church. And Lloyd Jones's contention is that you're unnecessarily dividing the people of God. You're harming the witness of the church. He feels like he's helping the witness of the church. But, and that's where the disagreement broke down. But I think this category of theological triage is important for that reason. So here's, here's kind of the operating framework I'm, I'm guiding. Imagine, and I wish I had the, had the image for you, but just imagine a pyramid, okay, a standard pyramid, and at the, you have it divided into three levels. At the very top of the pyramid, you would have those issues which are absolutely essential to Christianity. They're matters of salvation. They're matters of first importance. The second level, which is a bigger level, and it's a pyramid for a reason, right, The pyramid at the top means it's a a more limited number of important essential doctrines. As you move down, these are still important, and it gets a little bit bigger. And then as you move to the bottom rung, these are really important, but it's a lot wider. So at the top, you would have salvific matters, essential to Christianity. Second level, you've got reasonable boundaries that churches can have, which might separate them in, in in a denominational sense, not in a unity sense of one body of Christ, um, into different churches. And then you can have minor disagreements over which Christians should disagree in the same church. And that's a much broader category of issues. Okay, so you've got essential to Christianity. Those would be salvation matters. Reasonable boundaries, which would be church matters. And minor disagreements or important issues that are not worth dividing over in the third category. So let's talk about each one of those briefly. What are those first-level doctrines that would separate Christians from non-Christians? And that's the question we have to ask about these first-level first level doctrines. If it's essential to salvation, it must be something over which a Christian would be separated from a non-Christian. It must be an identifying trait of a believer, of a Christian. So first-level doctrines would be doctrines that are both central and essential to salvation itself. Without these doctrines, we either give up the gospel or we put ourselves at real risk of losing the gospel. So, a denial of these doctrines includes the eventual denial of Christianity itself. So, these doctrines would have to be doctrines that separate, for instance, Christians from cults, right, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, things like that, and other religions like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, spirituality, things like that. These are going to be important but limited doctrines that would separate Christians from both cults and other world religions. So these doctrines create essential unity around the gospel itself, and they include matters of salvation, and I would also say they include necessary moral entailments of salvation. So what do I mean by that? I mean that the doctrine of sanctification, right, not necessarily how it all works, but the doctrine that once Christ saves someone, he starts making them like Christ, is a first-level essential doctrine because it contains messages. It's regarding salvation, right? Does it mean we're saved by works? No, of course not. It means that those who are truly saved will begin changing in their life. And you can't let that go because it jeopardizes the message of the gospel, it says "You can have a gospel that inoculates you to hell but unchange you right so that 's a first level issue, the doctrine of sanctification itself. But even before we get to that, we could say that um, adultery is a first level issue. why? because it 's a necessary moral entailment of the gospel you can 't deny that sexual sin. Uh, is is not an issue in terms of whether or not one inherits the kingdom of God or not, and, and just dismiss that as having nothing to do with salvation. Um, all manner of sexual sin would be involved in that as well. So, and not just sexual sin, I mean, clear moral violations of Scripture that God says, these are the marks of Christianity, these are the marks of a Christian, we can't just shave those off and say, well, we don't really have to do those sorts of things. Um, So some some practical doctrinal examples would be, obviously, the Trinity, right? You can't deny that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God coexisting in three persons. Well, that's a mystery, obviously. We don't understand it fully, but we don't deny it. We don't deny that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, The person and work of Christ, you can't deny that Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's truly God. He's truly man. Uh, We can't deny that He died on the cross. We can't deny that He rose from the dead. We can't deny that His work was substitutionary. That is, He was taking on Himself our sin. We can't deny that He was bearing our sin in our place. We can't deny, obviously, His resurrection. Otherwise, His work is just invalidated. I think we also can't deny the reality of heaven and hell. right? We can't deny eternity. We can't deny that Jesus... Rose from the dead. He ascended back to the Father, and He's dwelling there, and He's preparing a place for us. And those who don't, those who reject Him, will go to hell. And those who receive Him will go to heaven. And then I don't think we can deny the authority of Scripture. That Scripture is where these things are revealed. That God has spoken in His Word. So these would be some foundational things, right? Um, that would that would um, that would be essential that separate Christians from non Christians. And we better be careful if we're going to put something in that first level that it actually be a distinguishing mark between a Christian and a non-Christian. right? We have, that's where we have to be careful. But when it comes to first-level theological doctrines, we need conviction and we need courage to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we need when it comes to first-level doctrines. We need to obey Jude 3, and we need courage and conviction to stand here no matter what the world throws at us because this is what makes a Christian a Christian. Okay, So that's first-level Essential to Christianity, very important. Secondly, yes, go ahead, Carly. Yeah. Okay, would that mean that um, Christians uh, that believed all of that stuff that are now embracing uh, homosexuality, you can be a Christian, but they okay, mm-hmm. would that eliminate them? I think, again, it puts it in danger and it raises the question, and it's a reason to come around them and say, brother, sister, do you not understand the necessary moral entailment of the gospel here? Look at these passages. What do you make of these? And, of course, we're getting revisions around those things now. Well, Paul's not really talking about same-sex committed relationships, which is one of the things we're hearing these days. He's referring to non-committed, kind of profligate sexuality. Well, I don't think that's the case. Because sex was given, at least one of the reasons, right? For the purpose of procreation. And that can't happen there. So something's wrong with it. Um, So, um, so yeah, I do think homosexuality is a necessary moral entailment of the gospel. And you will find that if that thread is pulled out, there will be a lot of dominoes that fall with it. A lot of other things will come. Yeah, Pastor Keith. Another question: Knowing that many of the books of the New Testament were written for this very reason, and then Paul in First Timothy and Second Timothy would actually call out to the men, "Hominias." Yeah, so it would appear that you know the thoughtfulness of someone in leadership naming someone, you know, J.L. Packer did it to uh, what's the commentator who denied the yeah. eternality of hell, right? John Stott, yeah, Stott. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, you know, those guys would have to lay carefully, yeah, <coughs> rather than TT T. Seals having a dog whistle and just, yes, every day. Right. Yeah. So there were like this. Yeah, and he and Lloyd Jones felt like he was missing that. He was just he was always prioritizing these other issues, but he wasn't saying, Yeah, but what about like would would people hear over the tenor of your ministry that your main concern is the salvation of sinners? Like is that your main thing? Like, I I think over, you know, our faithful Pastor Ted, over years here, 45 years, would you say that Pastor Ted's overwhelming ministry over four decades was one of like, well, he just picked apart issues. No, overwhelmingly, his concern was salvation of people, sanctification of the saints, growth in grace, you know. Did he have to pick issues every now and then that he had to address? Sure. But the overall, and all faithful pastors have to do that, but the tenor of the ministry was what we're looking at here. And it was... Gospel, 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 gospel is of first importance. And so, um, yeah, those things are all really, really important. Um, let's get into second level. Um, by the way, there can be some, some disagreements over some of these things. For instance, um, I believe John Stott's in heaven. Okay, I, I think his denial of the eternality of hell was horrendous and terrible, that he embraced annihilation, annihilationism, but he didn't deny hell. Right? He didn't deny hell as a category. Now, he denied the eternality of hell because he couldn't recognize, he couldn't reckon with that in terms of his own emotional framework, which totally understand that. But we have to submit our emotional frameworks to scripture, right? And and trust God with what we can understand sometimes. But nevertheless, he didn't deny it outright. But it was, it was a concern and it's, and it should be a concern, but, but I love Stott dearly. Um, second level doctrines, separating uh, different churches and denominations. So these would be doctrines over which churches, they would be significant enough regarding life and ministry of a local church that would, they would by necessity create both unity in the gospel and separation in the church. Now, there are doctrines upon which Bible-believing, Christ-following Christians may disagree but they create significant enough boundaries to warrant different congregations and denominations. So these doctrines create, then, essential unity around the things that are necessary to have a church itself. They're not salvation matters, per se, but they do have a significant impact on how we frame and live the Christian life. So what would be some examples of this? Well, the primary one is baptism. right? That's the one that has historically uh, divided the church. Now, there are some in... Uh, it, it, this is this is a, this is I can give you a practical example of how this works, um, even with our brother and sister Dwayne and Kimberly, and their work in Serbia. So, when, when Dwayne take brings teachers right from the states over to Serbia. So, the last teaching team I was on, we had a couple of Baptists, a Presbyterian, an E.V. Free Pastor. I think was that pretty much all the denominations represented. And those are pretty, pretty standard. Um, so an EV free pastor's evangelical free church, evangelical free church takes a baptism of believers position formally, but they will admit people who've been baptized as infants into membership. Okay. They don't require believers baptism for membership. Now, that's an issue over which an EV free church would separate from a Baptist church because Baptist church by conviction believe that we need to immerse believers in to receive them into membership. So, but that's not a salvation matter. That's not an issue over which we would say, you're not my brother in Christ. And just like I would sit across from my brother Mark Lauterbach as a Presbyterian, who used to be a Baptist, but a Presbyterian, and be able to affirm that brother, learn from that brother, love that brother, sit in his classes and enjoy what he's teaching, and even love to hear him on infant baptism, which I disagree with, but nevertheless, knowing it's not a matter of salvation, can uh can can unite in mutual ministry together in those contexts, even though we wouldn't unite in the same churches together, because baptism is, in my mind, a central and important doctrine regarding the second level of issues. Another issue would be the role of women in church leadership. Um, so whether a church is egalitarian, meaning women can be pastors, or whether a church is has a like I believe our church does, a robust view of women in ministry. We want women in ministry. Just we want it within the biblical parameters. a, A church is significantly harmed when women aren't teaching women, pouring into the life of the church, discipling, ministering, doing all manner of things. But Biblically, I think the pastoral role is limited to the to to men. So, but that's going to be an issue over which churches will have to decide one way or the other. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it, and it's going to separate denominations. Is it a matter of salvation? No, it's not a matter of salvation, but it is a matter of church life. Um, even some Presbyterian denominations, like um, the Presbyterian the Evangelical Presbyterian Church versus the PCA. I'm not talking about the PCUSA. USA. PCUSA is largely liberal, but um, and Larry will get into some of this when we talk when he talks about various categories of theology in our own community. Um, but there's within Presbyterianism there's PCA Presbyterian Church in America, which was formed in the 70s out of the PCUSA as a conservative Presbyterian denomination. Believe the Bible, believe the gospel, all that, and then the the EPC the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So what would be the difference between those? Is it Calvinism? No. They're all Reformed in theology. But the difference is is whether they allow presbyteries to decide whether they will ordain women to pastoral ministry or not. So the EPC leaves that freedom to the presbytery to decide. The PCA says, no, that's going to be an issue over which our denomination is going to unite. So all Presbyterian churches in America have to have male-only elders. EPC would say, depends on the presbytery. Depends on where you are. So again... They would recognize each other and brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, but there's a reason there's an EPC and a PCA. Okay, so that's a that's just one example of kind of a world outside of ours. Um, I think Calvinism and Arminianism as overwhelming paradigms will create different churches and denominations. Not necessarily, I think Arminianism as a holistic framework that's committed to will not necessarily that people who hold various Arminian positions can exist within Calvinistic churches or vice versa. But as a holistic framework, I think those can necessarily kind of drive believers into into different churches. Spiritual gifts, specifically the cessationism or continuationism of the miraculous gifts of the New Testament, apostolic era. Those sorts of things will obviously have a dramatic effect on the life of the congregation and how the, the congregation operates and frames the Christian life. Now, not of course, all Christians believe in spiritual gifts. <laughs> we all believe in spiritual gifts. It's just whether or not those apostolic miraculous gifts of the first century are still at work in the New Covenant, New, T- New Testament church in this era, and how that affects um, the life of the church. And then, what is the mission of the church? What's the primary mission of the church? Is the mission of the church to make disciples, baptize them, train them up in Christ? Or is it all manner of other uh, uh, programs and agendas? Um, you know, education or, um, you know, uh, mercy ministry or all good things. All things that the church should be involved in doing. But again, those sorts of mission elements will, will shape how a congregation thinks about itself and does ministry. So those would be some examples of second-level doctrines. We could probably put some more in there. But again, it's a, it's a, lo- a little bit of a larger category but it 's not these are not matters that are essential to salvation, but they're doctrines that require wisdom and balance from Christians to navigate, usually in a multitude of counselors and informed by church history. Third level doctrines these are disagreements that it can exist within the same local church, and this is the vast majority of a lot of doctrine that 's taught in the Bible. Third level doctrines are disputable matters that individual Christians may disagree about, but which are overcome by greater unity around the primary and secondary matters that they share in common, which is the two top levels of the pyramid. So there are doctrines upon which Bible-believing, Christ-following Christians may disagree, yet do not create significant enough boundaries to warrant different congregations or denominations, because these doctrines have less effect on the gospel or the Christian life. So what would be some examples of this? what bible translation you prefer worship style dress education for your children alcohol holidays tattoos food and diet political and cultural perspectives most issues surrounding the end times various interpretations of difficult passages of scripture matters of christian liberty all sorts of issues that we could that we could bring into that over which the bible addresses either that they are important They're important to us, otherwise we wouldn't have convictions about those matters, right? But not every conviction that we have needs to be the conviction of our brothers and sisters. Okay? That's, and and what's happening, what I fear sometimes can happen, is because these third level issues are so many, they feel so big. And they're not so big. Because the second level and the first level issues are the big things. Trinity's big. Baptism's big, tattoos is not so big, <laughs> okay. Or person and work of Christ is big. Uh, 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 education is you know, or person and work of Christ is big. Spiritual gifts is big, but you know how I interpret Leviticus twenty six thirteen, you know, as an example may not be as big. So, again, these are just ways of thinking that I think require restraint on the part of God's people, and circumspection. We need, to, we, need to, we need to keep a close watch on ourselves here because there is a tendency in, among God's people to, to, to elevate those third-level issues into second-level issues. And we start to treat, well, maybe I shouldn't be in the same church with that brother or sister. Or, well, maybe, maybe they're not even a Christian. Ooh, be careful there. You just took a third level and put it in a first level. Don't do that. Well, they don't share my particular political perspective on this matter. Not saying, I'm not talking about the political perspective of abortion. Abortion is a moral matter, not a political matter, right? But I'm talking about how you get about ending it. Okay, we can disagree about that, okay? But, so we're not talking about those sorts of things, but we're talking about, you know, well, they don't interpret this cultural event the same way I do, so. Well, I probably should go separate and become. A, we should probably separate and become a different church, the church of the not this. And then we should probably call into question, or maybe call into question their salvation, or at least be concerned and be praying for their repentance. Like, come on, come on. Um, and but that's but that's a tendency that can happen. Yeah, Jim. not a sin, but they just don't feel the same way I do. I think they believe that drinking beer is a sin, Yeah. therefore that's why they elevate Some, the food some food. would, not all. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? or, or whatever other issues. Yeah. Like if you some might just not like the taste of beer. Well, right, right. Like me. But, <laughs> no, you right. know. but then, I know that's you're a that's an error. That's wrong. Because they like the taste. Yeah. It, <laughs> but, but like watching what movies you watch are entertainment? like. Yeah the hard rock. Right. I guess I'm trying to defend myself. But, you, know, you can but listen to Journey, hard Jim. Rock. Some people will say, well, you shouldn't be listening. You know, that's a yeah, sin. Right. You know? And, and it, it isn't an edifying, probably.
1: Yeah, you know? Yeah. But, but, uh, Don't
0: stop believing, Jim. Keep the faith. <laughs> that, that's soft music there. I'm thinking more. So, <laughs> but anyway, it's a journey. Yeah, that's a journey. Yeah. Probably most people here say, oh, Journey's not a sin. Well, you're listening to RB. Yeah. <laughs> Probably do. We, we'll we'll meet, meet about that, Jim. We probably need to set up a couple sessions. <laughs> no, but those are good illustrations. And that's, and that's where we also, you know, especially around these third level, the Bible has a lot to say about how we relate to other Christians, especially you think Paul in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Paul talks a lot about how we're supposed to go out of our way. To not offend the consciences of our brothers and sisters, to make it easy for them not to feel like we're straining ourselves around each other, you know. So if we know that's a particular struggle, I mean, you're not. If you know that uh, a brother or sister, maybe maybe they have a certain. You guys like the same kind. Of, take your music analogy. You like the same kind of music, but that brother or sister, I mean, as soon as they start hearing that stuff, they go right back to. I mean, it just raises all this past life for them and it like resurrects all these memories and it makes it really difficult. Well, I'm not going to turn that on in the car with them, you know? Um, and, and it's good to know that about a brother or sister so that you, and you don't say, well, man, brother, you need to get a stronger conscience here, you know, you need to work, out, work that work that out. No, you respect them, you try to love them, and you try to make it easy for them to not stumble in that way. So those would be examples of, the, and, and same with alcohol. If you know a brother or sister has, a, has, a, has had a struggle with that in the past, you know you don't you're not going to say, hey, uh, yeah, we've got newer Christians coming to our wedding we're not going to serve alcohol at our wedding, you know like that's just not a good idea, or I've got you know what will it look like to the community? Does that mean it's wrong? No, but you know, and we, we have to wrestle th- through these things all the time, and sometimes it's just being willing to put aside your freedom. For the sake of another person's conscience, or the sake of a of a greater gospel witness, and Paul does that over and over and over and over again, and he commands the church over and over again to do that. So um, we're getting ready to wrap up. Um, so I will get to um, I, I will come back to this next week and deal with hopefully on the front end getting a little bit into the kind of questions that shape. Okay, how do we put things in various categories, and how do you determine that? So let me just conclude with this and then we'll, I'll wrap up in prayer, and we'll pick up there next week. Um, so just to review quickly, um, we've looked at some of the, the Bible verses on the idea of theological priority and how Jesus and the apostles and even Old Testament prophets thought in those categories. We've also provided a practical framework that didn't originate with me, hardly anything does, um, uh, of, of how to separate things into first, second, and third level uh, doctrines, first level being essential to the gospel itself, they're, they're, they impact whether or not a person is a Christian or a non-Christian, at least on the on the basis of profession. Um, and then influence, we need to have courage and conviction regarding those matters. And then there's second-level doctrines that are important matters for the life of the church. They, they would impact churches being separated and yet at the same time unified in Christ and in the gospel. Um, they require wisdom and balance. And then there's third-level issues that would be disputable matters among Christians, They're a chance for the saints to grow in love within the same congregation and sanctify each other and they require humility and restraint. And those third level doctrines can be important to theology but not enough to justify division among Christians or they can be unimportant but Uh, to our gospel witness or ministry collaboration and therefore should be ones over which Christians can partner up in ministry together and serve together because they're not necessarily issues in the second or third level operating within the same church or within the level of salvation. So that's a lot. Let's pray together and uh, we'll conclude. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to discuss these things as brothers and sisters together this morning. I know for me, it's felt like preaching or teaching through a fire hose, and I'm sure for us, it's felt like drinking from one. So, uh, Lord, would you take these things and, and sanctify them to our hearts and our minds and our lives and help us to, to be courageous and yet convictional and compassionate and humble and wise and balanced? And we acknowledge, Holy Spirit, guide us. We need your help to be this sort of, we need, where where we need where we we're, we're treating first level issues like third level issues, God, we need courage and conviction to stand, and where we're treating maybe third level issues like first level issues, we need great humility and and love and understanding um, from your word. So Lord, guide us in all of these ways and give us wisdom, Spirit, because we need your wisdom. We are not sufficient for these things. We need help and to to navigate your word according to your will and way. So have your way with us in our minds, in our hearts, in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.